Welcome to the Modern Immortals Podcast. I'm Marco Lamb. And I'm Luke Terry. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the cutting edge of evolutionary practices as they apply to our modern lives. We draw our inspiration from the original biohackers, the Taoist Immortals, who dedicated their lives to manifesting the full potential of mind, body, and spirit. We interview people who inspire us with how they're living their lives and expanding the realm of what's possible in being a human. Come join us on the ride. This podcast is supported by our good friends over at Performance Tea. I've been involved with this project since the beginning. As a chief formulator of their products, my goal is to bring thousands of years of Chinese herbal wisdom to a daily adaptogenic tea that can support people in achieving their full potential. Performance Tea is helping many athletes, hardworking entrepreneurs, and everyday people in uncovering the leading edge of health, performance, and longevity. The teas taste great and come in a concentrated powder that easily mixes with water. These products are the most powerful combination of adaptogenic teas on the market, and we're getting feedback from people drinking the tea that they're achieving levels of athletic performance and cognitive superpowers that they find exceptional. Welcome to the Modern Immortal with your hosts, Marco Lamb and... I'm Luke Terry. And today we have a special edition of Modern Immortal where we're focusing on COVID-19, a novel new coronavirus that is... Uh, a pandemic of fear right now, a pandemic of misinformation, and a pandemic of a virus moving very quickly through our country here. Absolutely, Marco. This is an important topic to address for our listeners and for the public at large. There's a lot of fear going on right now. There's a lot of panic buying of things like toilet paper and emergency food supplies. And we really want to talk about this virus and understand what people can do to protect themselves and their loved ones, and also both dispel some of the fear for people who are in an excess fear state, but also maybe wake up the people who think that this is no big deal and address what the real potential complications are of this disease for both society and for individuals. Yes, in the ecosystem of panic and within the renewal of hope, acupuncturists on the front line are on the front line of providing good counsel to the people they care for. Patients are asking us if they should isolate themselves, if they should stock up on food, and how worried they should be about this novel coronavirus. It's up to us collectively to provide a measured and healthy response without giving in to fear. For the majority of healthy children and adults, there's not much more to fear than a severe flu, but for the elderly, smokers, the obese, or the immune compromised, this particular virus is very difficult to treat. This is m- virus is moving much quicker through the U.S. than most people expected, according to most data sources, and we should endeavor to be fully prepared. I believe we're still on the front edge of this pandemic that will last several months. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, we're in a very unique situation right now in that we're actually watching this virus unfold in real time on social media. This was not the case 12 years ago when SARS, which was another coronavirus, began its run. The interesting thing about SARS is that it was a much more virulent disease and it killed younger people and it killed them much faster. That's ironic because it actually made that virus much more easy to contain because people got so sick so quickly that it didn't allow them to spread. But back in 2003 when that virus came out, social media wasn't as established as it is today. And so now we're seeing in real time the very leading edge of something that has a doubling rate of, of every, every few weeks, the population that has the disease doubles. So we are very much in an early stage of this pandemic, and this could potentially become something very serious. And I think for myself, when I first read about it in social media and in the news, I felt like uh, you know, the news is overselling this thing. It's not going to be that big a deal. You know, the president's saying it's not much worse than a flu. Um, and it took, it took a while of me actually doing some research to, particularly with experts who, whose voices aren't very loud in the scene to overcome my normalcy bias, that everything's going to be normal, that life as we expected will continue to go on. Whereas I think the data is starting to show that, especially if, if we look at the stock market, which both, you know, factors in fear and uncertainty, but also factoring in like, if we look at China, we have 850 million urban Chinese workers on full lockdown, and now 60 million Italians in countrywide quarantine. 
that's 18% of the world's GDP that's been taken offline. And I was talking with Luke, you know, I'm half Chinese and my experience of Chinese culture is they usually don't take business offline ever. So this is, this is sort of unprecedented in a way. I was in uh, Taiwan and in China on the tail end of the SARS epidemic and people were afraid and changing social behavior, but businesses were not shutting down, they weren't closing the doors, you know. This is, this is unprecedented in a way. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting, Marco. We have an interesting symmetry there because I'm half Italian. And I think there's a similar culture in, in Italy. But Italy is a very social culture. And for Italians to stay home and not socialize with each other and hang out on, in the town square every night and have meet their family for coffees, that is absolutely unheard of in their country as well. So we see some really interesting similarities and interesting parallels. And for me, I think what tipped it over was seeing some of the more astute business leaders in this country, particularly in Silicon Valley. Um, some venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who've, who've really been able to see market changes coming before they happened as they started to publish their findings and their reports on what they thought was going to happen. That really made me sit up and take notice and really start to, as you said, dig into the scientific literature, dig into the medical reports from the front lines, and really begin to understand what was happening in real time. Yeah, and I would say we still don't really know. We don't know what's going to happen, and nobody knows. Nobody knows the future. But I think one of the advantages that people who work in the high-tech industry understand more than most is they understand logarithmic or exponential growth. Yes. And whereas for the average person, like, the idea of logarithmic or exponential growth is it, it doesn't quite quite add up mentally in their head. It's it's these hockey stick curves you see, you know, where suddenly once when things start compounding on each other is we see this rapid growth. What and it can be on, you know, computer chip processing speed, or it could be in this case, you know, a virus being spread around Yeah, that's a great point. Is it that is it is the exponential growth, the exponential doubling of this virus that makes it quite frightening and actually makes it quite fortunate that we have social media and the communication tools that we have today because we can actually get in front of it. That is, that is the benefit of where we are today. And I, and I think we can go to that old fortune cookie adage uh, that the Chinese character for crisis contains both the character for danger and the character for opportunity. And I see that we have the opportunity to really slow the spread of this virus by being well-educated as a community, that we can take this time before the virus really hits us to really boost our own immunities, and that we can take this time when we're maybe being less social, less going out into the field, uh, voluntarily um, socially distancing, to really sort of take time for reflection on this wild, beautiful, interconnected world we live in and look at some of the fragile systems and ha ask how do we build more anti-fragility into both our economies and our health. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Marco. And, and I think this event has really illustrated the fact that we have quite fragile supply chains. There's been some conversation on the supply chains, particularly in the medical industry in the United States, that requires heavily on supply chains from Asia. And even if not from Asia, there's still single supply chains. One example that was pointed out recently was the fact that all, or actually some large percentage, some 80 or 90% of all IV bags in the United States came from a small factory in Puerto Rico that was negatively affected by the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico last year. So we're, what we're seeing then is that because the supply chains have multiple single points of failure, in other words, multiple points in the supply chain where it can be disrupted with no alternative supply, we see a very fragile medical system. And so our medical system now is reeling under the fact that the supply chain in China has been shut down pretty much since um, the first or second week in February. Yep. And maybe even a little bit earlier because you have, you know, we had a sort of a Chinese New Year that went right into the sort of... Coronavirus uh, 
COVID-19 spreading. So you had both the sort of, it'd be the equivalent of us of like coming off of Christmas break and then the economy, you know, shutting down. So like literally you have, you have a lot of Chinese who've been out of work for four weeks. Small businesses closed down for four weeks. And so we, we face not only the, the viral illness, but we also face a huge social and economic disruption. Yeah, that's, that's accurate, Marco. We've seen in this country wave after wave of events canceling. Uh, lots of conferences. You know, my speaking schedule for the, the early part of this year has been completely rearranged. I do a lot of travel for speaking in, in my consulting engagements, and most of those events have canceled or postponed. So we're seeing that across the board, South by Southwest canceling, you know, some of the largest events in music. Uh, Expo West. Expo West, yeah, absolutely. Big natural foods show all canceled. And and I think these are actually good things. I think that it's, you know, they had evidence of the early spread of this virus. You know, some of the tracking was a uh, sales uh, conference, I think, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And then everybody went home to their, all over the world and sort of seeded the illnesses into new places. And we can look at the, you know, the benefit of conferences of bringing knowledge from all over the world and sharing it at one point. But with virus spread, it can also be that vector for spreading that virus all over. Absolutely. There was another example of that here in the United States. There was a biotech conference in Boston in which um, 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 eight, or, eight or ten members of a single team for a biotech company in, Bo in Boston got the virus and then began spreading it around their community. So we should probably take this time and talk a little bit about how this virus spreads because this is really one of the things that makes this virus dangerous and causes its communicability to be quite high. Yeah, and I think it's important that we learn from the response in China but also use an integral view to combine the best of Eastern and Western approaches. What we don't hear of much of in the news is that the treatment in China relies on using both microbiome-specific plant-based medicinals and dietary therapy in addition to using Western protocols to treat the illness. But let's, let's start with the Western approach. The benefit of the Western scientific tradition is that we know that coronaviruses are envelope-positive strand RNA viruses. Like most RNA viruses, they're in a constant dance of recombining their genetic code and will continue, continue to make new variants of themselves. The challenge with viral infections is the main weapon in the Western arsenal is immunizations, which take a while to develop, and then the viruses are always evolving around the edges. Absolutely. Yeah, make some great points there, Marco. The coronavirus uh, hit the scene. The first coronavirus to hit the scene was SARS, but this coronavirus that causes COVID-19, which is... Uh, a close relative to that original SARS virus called SARS-CoV-2 uh, that is a much more aggressive pathogen. But we know that when this virus invades, it stimulates coughing and sneezing, which basically makes it able to invade more hosts. The virus, when it invades the lungs, it infects the cilia, which are those tiny little hairs in your lungs that move mucus and particulate out of our lungs. And when the cilia get too damaged, they cease to function and our lungs start clogging up with mucus. The pneumonia caused by SARS-CoV-2 is particularly difficult to treat, and the, when the body sends out its messenger molecules, the cytokines, uh, which in the worst, worst cases basically can cause an inflammatory meltdown in the body. This virus, once it gets into the body, attaches to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, ACE2, linkages on the surface of the cells. ACE2 regulates the renin-angiotensin system, the RAS, which includes the lungs, spleen, lymph node, and kidneys, and vascular system. That's why when we see this virus, when it starts replicating in our cells and taking us over their cells, sometimes it can cause like full-on organ collapse through this RAS system. Mm -hmm. um, and this is particularly useful because understanding how this pathogen hijacks our cells, how it reproduces itself, and how it releases to new hosts lets us cross-reference data on herbs which affect those particular systems. Um, well, the interesting thing about the ACE2 system is that it expresses 
much more highly on the surface of the cells when people have certain diseases. And so this is why we see a much higher death rate of people that have what we call comorbidities or they have other conditions. So on the top of the list, diabetes, heart disease, arteriosclerosis, any sort of coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, uh, obesity, smokers, people who live in high air pollution areas, all of these conditions cause that ACE2 receptor to express more readily on the surface of the cell. And what that does then is it gives the virus more surface area to attack. So in other words, there's more open windows for the virus to enter the cell and begin replicating inside the cell using the cell's hardware. Yeah, it's fascinating. And we see this sort of early information coming back from Wuhan is that a lot of the folks were elderly smokers living in a polluted cities and having comorbidity conditions. And so one of the challenges I see in America is, you know, the amount of obesity and heart disease in America is actually much higher than in China, though generally our air quality and the number of smokers here is far less. So we have still yet to see how, how that plays out. Yeah, that's true. And so in the cases in we, where we've seen rapid spread in a small population in the United States, that's primarily been in Seattle at a nursing home. And so we know that most of those folks that were affected at the nursing home in Seattle were over age 80 and also had quite a few comorbidities. We haven't yet really seen a, a rapid spread outside of those kinds of settings in the United States, but, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. And just the amount of concentrated elders in nursing homes in this country, whereas in China, that's not necessarily how they treat their elderly. A lot of times the elderly are part of an extended family unit and it's expected that the younger people, uh, the children take care of their elders as they age. Mm -hmm. So like when we have these concentrated elder populations in the United States, it creates a big potential danger. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a, t a ticking time bomb in some ways. So these kinds of facilities, elder care facil facilities, senior centers and other places where older people gather, they'll have to take extra steps to really be very cautious to make sure these folks aren't exposed or are exposed at a slower rate. One of the interesting things that's being propagated right now in, the, in the social media is the idea that we're all going to be exposed at some point. It's, it's just a matter of time because this virus, it, it spreads, it can spread up to four and a half feet away from a person. So we're all just walking around in a, in a cloud of a microbiome. We're always shedding bacteria, fungi, and viruses just off of our skin as we breathe. And this essentially creates a, a bubble around us of, of a microbiome. And once this virus becomes a part of a person's microbiome, they can spread it to anyone within a few feet of them in an environment where people are sharing the same air. So we're all gonna be exposed. The best thing we can do at this point is to spread out the rate at which we're exposed. That way the, the peak of people who are, are becoming really sick is diffused over time. So in other words, the people who are gonna get this are likely the people who are gonna get it. And there isn't a whole lot of, of, of uh, stopping that, but we can slow it down. What we see in Northern Italy and in China is that so many people got the disease so quickly that it rapidly overwhelmed the healthcare systems to take on these new patients into the hospital setting. And so in Northern Italy, 90% of the hospitals in the Lombardy region, 90% of the hospital beds were allocated to treating the COVID-19 patients. And only 10% of the hospital remained to treat patients who were, that were having other types of illnesses, heart attacks and other things that, that are gonna happen in, anyway. And so there was a huge reallocation of medical resources to the virus and it quickly overwhelmed the system. Quickly, there were not enough hotel beds. And I've actually even heard reports that in, in Northern Italy, they're having to triage. In other words, they're having to, to choose the patients in which they treat. Some of the patients are so bad and so far gone so quickly, their lungs are filling up so quickly with fluid that they're having to um, administer last rites rather than administering medical care to the, some of the most severe patients because they have very little chance of saving them. And of course, these are the oldest patients with the, the highest number of comorbidities. Yeah, I've heard a lot of sort of war zone metaphors coming back from Italy, from the medical field. You know, one of the things that I think that I haven't heard that I think is so useful is that we actually know that there's a fair amount of research that we can actually protect these ACE2 sites, uh, these um, 
we, there's herbs like glycorrhiza, licorice, Scutellaria bicolensis, Chinese skullcap, uh, Sambucus, uh, elder, uh, Polygonum cuspitatum, uh, Japanese knotweed, and many plants high in procyandins and lectins, uh, even cinnamon. You know, that there's things that we can do. It's not like it will pre pre be like a perfect shield preventing us from any virus, but we can, we can lessen our chances. And I think a lot of what we need to do collectively is we need to lessen the chances of this virus spreading, slow it down. I completely agree, Marco. And, and it's interesting that if you look at the, tr the spread of the common influenza viruses, we're actually entering a, a time of year when influenza is naturally declining. And that's because in the spring, people start to go outside more. The angle of the sun is such that we produce more vitamin D on our skin. Uh, people are more active. They exercise outside more. So typically, right around now, the traditional flu starts to decline. So what we're very likely to see in this COVID-19 outbreak is that total cases will start to decline. And we'll see a slowing of the virus as spring turns into summer. But the real potential is that this fall, as temperatures begin to get colder, people spend less time outdoors, there's less vitamin D available from the sun, that we'll see a big spike. And in regular flu, the fall spike is actually much more severe than the spring spike. So what that essentially gives us is a five or six month window where we have the opportunity to prepare ourselves and our loved ones for a potentially much more severe flu season in the fall. So what we should all be doing right now is really maximizing our health. We should, even though it's stressful right now, there's a lot of economic uncertainty, we really need to be bolstering our immune systems. We need to be getting the best sleep that we can. We need to be exercising. We need to be really mindful of our diet and making sure that we're not eating foods that contribute to cold and damp. In other words, we need to be minimizing sugar consumption, carbohydrate starch consumption. Of course, we need some, or you know, some is, is healthful, but most Americans eat way too much, and that carbohydrate, we know from a lot of studies, actually the most, one of the most vulnerable populations to the regular flu is type two diabetics, which we know that that comes from an overconsumption of carbohydrates and it leads to an impairment in the metabolism of carbohydrates, which then leads to immune system impairment. So we have this window here where we can really maximize our health and we definitely need to be taking every step we can to maximize our own health, minimize the transmission of the virus through hygiene practices and really preparing for what could be a much worse flu season in the fall. Yeah, and I think there's an interior perspective that we can take of how, how do I be responsible here? How do I calm my nervous system? How do I boost my psychoneuroimmunology? How do I boost that sense of well-being in myself? And most of us know to a certain extent what does this. We know that when we're stressed and afraid that our chances of getting ill are much higher. So it's, it's a way of, for me, there's a chance to take radical responsibility here. And what does that radical responsibility look like? We'll talk more toward the end of the podcast. But uh, Luke mentioned cold and damp, and I think this is a really uh, important piece that Chinese medicine can play. Uh, the benefit of the Chinese medical tradition is the ability to see complex patterns in complex ecologies and treat them with complex plant-based medicine, plant-based medicine that accounts for both the patient's microbiome, the environmental factors, and the pathogen's virulence. From all the Chinese medical doctors that I'm hearing from uh, who are on the front lines in China, one pattern keeps emerging at the heart of this illness. There's not a good Western analog for it, uh, but it translates as dampness, which Luke mentioned. And the COVID-19 epidemic is looked at as a damp plague. And this is the first time we've seen this particular damp plague. Uh, and it's, it's the Chinese doctors are still sort of working to get ahead of it. But we're seeing that the most successful cases of COVID-19 being treated in China are being treated with this integrative approach of using herbs, Western care, and dietary therapy. Um, and, you know, the first thing I want to say is from the doctors in China, we're seeing a very common and easy diagnostic tool, which I'm surprised hasn't been talked about in sort of Western public health because it was very easy. And we don't want to worry people because certain people have this tongue coating who don't have the virus. But if you either have this tongue coating, you're much more susceptible to the virus. And if 
if it if you don't normally have that tongue coating that sort of tongue coating can be a early indicator maybe even before other symptoms approach and when you look at this tongue microbiome on the tongue you'll see this thick sticky white coating like i talk about it like a carpet uh, most of us like if you ha ever had like a really bad hangover and your mouth just tastes horrible and you look at your tongue in this morning and in the morning and you see this thick white coat that's dampness now most of us who are healthy might have only seen that when we're really hung over or really sick but uh, using this as a diagnostic indicator especially in the time that there's a current sort of slowdown of adequate antibody or polymerase chain reaction testing on the western side where we're not seeing like the u.s is not getting a really ahead of it like South Korea did and just sort of testing people and drive-throughs and testing everybody to try to slow down the spread. The, the U.S. is really saving those tests for once people are in the hospital with pneumonia or if they've been around countries where the disease is already spread or um, that they've been around people who have the illness in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. So these sort of home diagnostics are very, very important. And I think it's important to think about the, the symptoms, the early onset symptoms, because this, these are the things that are going to help people understand that they need to go into self-quarantine to prevent spreading the virus to their friends and family and loved ones. So, Marco, can you talk a little bit about the early onset symptoms? What, what do we see in the early COVID-19 patients for the first few days? Uh, fever, malaise, like fatigue, body aches, uh, a cough. And for most of what I hear is the cough is more of a dry cough that like you can feel something stuck in your lungs. Like the, the phlegm of this particular kind of cough is very sticky. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese uh, are describing it like uh, oil mixed with flour. So sort of like, like gooky. And that makes it really hard to expect, right? And this is the, the stuff that's filling up in people's lungs and causing some long-term sequelae. Yeah, people are seeing long-term effects. So what we're seeing is that a, a sizable number of people who are infected are recovering, but just because they've recovered don't mean that there are not downstream side effects. Yeah, there can be long-term uh, lung damage from, from this phlegm, and it can be very difficult to treat from a Chinese medicine perspective. While most of the cases, like 80% of, ca of the cases they're saying is mild, but like this mild is a pretty nasty pneumonia. Yes. Like it's, it's, it's mean, like when they say mild, it means like you don't need to go to the hospital and getting supplemental oxygen. And so like this mild flu is still a, a, a pretty beater. Um, there are things you can do uh, both uh, herbally to treat, treat this. I think it'd probably be outside the scale of this podcast. But uh, what I'd recommend you do if you get one of these nasty flus is contact one of your acupuncturists. Uh, Chinese medicine specialists don't go into their office but ask for a Skype call and see if they'll get you uh, phlegm resolving medicinals. One of the interesting things is traditionally a lot of the herbs that we use to treat uh, upper respiratory illnesses are heat clearing herbs and in this case usually you do not want to clear heat first. Uh, a lot of times in traditional flus you'll clear the heat first and then when the heat resolves, then you'll clear the dampness. In this case, you really want to resolve the dampness first. That sort of sticky, phlegmy condition, if you start hitting it with a lot of cold herbs, can sort of damage the, uh, in Chinese medicine, the sort of uh, digestive center. And it can even produce more phlegm. And then you can get into really fast downward spirals. Yeah, let's take that apart from a little bit of an integrated perspective, Marco. From... From what I can see, when we, when we discuss heat in traditional Chinese medicine, oftentimes what we're talking about are markers of inflammation. And what we need to understand is that inflammation is the first stage of healing. And so if we use herbal medicine or even anti-inflammatory over-the-counter drugs, we're blocking inflammation. And these are processes the body really needs to halt the spread of the virus. When we go back to the 1918 flu, the Spanish flu that killed somewhere between 18 and 50 million people worldwide, what we see there is this was right after the first non-steroidal anti-inflammatories became widely available when, uh, when aspirin was first commonly available as a drug. And so 
there are numerous studies to support the idea that when people suppressed that fever with anti-inflammatories in the, in the Spanish flu era, they actually increased the rate of morbidity. They inc- increased the rate of fatalities because anti-inflammatory drugs actually stop the body's ability to mount a defense. So what you don't want to do in this case is to try to suppress the fever with ibuprofen or acetaminophen or aspirin or any of those anti-inflammatory, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. It's actually quite harmful to do so. In the Chinese medicine world, this would be the equivalent of clearing heat with anti-inflammatory herbs. We want to save that for later. What we want to do right now at the beginning is to make sure we begin to clear dampness. And we have a, a number of mechanisms to do that. And as Marco said, this is beyond the scope of the, of the podcast. We don't want to get into a deep dive on the herbal medicine treatment of coronavirus, although we may do that in the future. We want to really focus on the practices that people can do today that will stop the spread of the virus and decrease the severity of the virus if you do get it. You know, one of the things is to know, are you predisposed to dampness? This is, you know, a good place to look is at your tongue. If you see uh, tooth marks on the side of your tongue, that basically shows that you're, uh, you're producing more enzymes in your saliva because, and your tongue is swelling to produce more enzymes because you're having a difficult time digesting what you're already eating. And when you have this case, this digestive uh, deficiency, uh, your chances of creating more dampness are a lot higher. Uh, if you really see a coat on your tongue, you know your dampness chances are uh, creating dampness is already there. And so one of the things that we can do is start being proactive about clearing dampness out of the body. Uh, the diet should be relatively light. We should drink more soups, eat more stews, um, less oil, less salt, avoiding pickled, braised, and cured meats, uh, basically avoiding tobacco and alcohol. Alcohol is probably the biggest cause of dampness in the United States. Uh, Alcohol and probably white flour products are probably two of the worst things you can eat. Uh, Don't eat cold, greasy food. As a general, avoid fried foods. And we intuitively know which foods are sort of difficult to digest, but a lot of times they're savory and tasty and delicious. Everything from a donut to French fries to a hamburger. Um, these are things that the, basically the American diet is really predisposed to dampness. And so it's one of the challenges we're going to face. Uh, and tropical fruits are a su- sort of surprising one. Uh, bananas especially tend to create a lot of dampness. When I think of sort of like even sort of health conscious boulder, like if someone eats a smoothie with, mm. you know, a soy protein isolate, a banana, soy milk for breakfast, and then eats a cold salad for lunch, uh, like this is a damp producing diet. And so really what you want to do is lots of steamed greens, uh, lots of whole grains, uh, lots of lean grass-fed meats, um, seaweeds, lots of vegetables, and, and a lot of like deeply baked, slow-cooked things that are easy to digest. Think Basically, when my patients ask, I don't know how to avoid eating with dampness, I'm, I say, just imagine you're really, really hungover. What would you want to eat? And they're like, oh, Vietnamese pho. I'm like, oh, you got it. There you go. You know, uh, would you want to eat a piece of cold pizza? They're like, hell no. You know, would you want to eat a smoothie when you're hungover? No. You know, you want to eat some soup, some chicken soup, mm-hmm. you know, something of these old like bone broth recipes from all cultures generally are good preventative measures. Absolutely. And I think that also gets into the idea that we want to eat lots of things that have uh, high antioxidant contents and things that have a lot of aromatic properties. So things like onions. Onions are great because they're warming and they also have a lot of prebiotics in them which help your microbiome. And so one of, the, one of the most important things we can do is to actually nourish our microbiome to make sure we have the healthy microbes in our gut. We can correlate the tongue coating to our microbiome. And so we know that when someone has a thick, sticky, greasy tongue coating, it's an outward sign that their, the microbiome in their gut is disordered. And so as your, as your microbiome starts to become more ordered and more healthy, that tongue coating should reduce back to a, a thin non-greasy, normal-looking tongue coating. Uh, 
Yeah, and going back to that old Chinese adage, you know, that the Chinese word for crisis contains both danger and opportunity. This is an opportunity really individually for us to really take better care of our health, but also collectively, it's really a chance to really evolve our understanding of the complex microbiomes in human beings and what gives immunity. And when we start seeing this on a global scale where, you know, fear can be such a contractive energy, but it also can be a huge motivator for people to change. I totally agree. Fear is an evolved mechanism. We have the emotion of fear for a reason. It's part of our threat detection and threat mitigation mechanism in our brain and consciousness. So we need to pay attention to fear and not try to suppress it. And so the, the fear that's happening out there is adaptive in a sense. Um, and even a little bit of panic may not be a bad thing as long as we can prevent it from really robbing our resources. The other side of fear is that it can spike cortisol. And we know that cortisol, the stress hormone, begins to pull resources away from other important pathways in our body. So I think it now is a good place to segue to, we talked a little bit about diet, but what what are other things that people can do? You know, uh, you want to start with that one, Luke? Sure. So um, the, the, first, the, the first and most important thing we can do is practice really strong personal hygiene throughout this viral outbreak. And that means be very mindful of what we're doing with our hands, especially when we're out in public. We need to be really paying attention to uh, what you're touching. You know, doorknobs can be an incredible vector for this virus. So not touching your, your nose, eyes, really your face at all when you're out in public before you wash your hands. Washing your hands extensively after meals, or before meals, after meals, um, and really... Anytime you're out in public touching things, you should be washing your hands afterwards before you're consuming any food or before you're touching your face or touching your loved ones. An interesting side note on that, the particular coronavirus uh, uh, has a sort of lipid layer. It's sort of a fatty layer and soaps denature that fatty layer and basically get rid of the virus. So adequately soaping your hands and really washing your hands a lot of people wash their hands only for a very short time and in this case you actually need to wash them a lot longer people are saying like sing happy birthday you know while you're <laughs> while you're washing your hands and i think that you know this sort of personal personal hygiene is a huge piece and i also notice in myself it's so difficult not to touch your face mm -hmm. and there's been these gaffes on social media about all these public health <laughs> Uh, officials saying, you know, don't touch your ha face, don't shake hands. And then they're like doing those things just sort of unconsciously. So it's really sort of a, it's a chance for mindfulness in a way. It really is. That's, that's a, a great way to put it. It's quite the meditation practice to not touch your face. Yeah. Uh, you know, another thing, I think one herbal remedy that's particular of use, it's, a, it's sort of a lightweight remedy against sort of a heavyweight opponent. But I think collectively, it should be fairly easy to resource is uh, elderberry syrup. Uh, elderberry uh, basically protects that um, uh, ACE2 linkage on in the body. And so if we take a little bit of elderberry syrup every day, it's sort of like a little bit of insurance. Absolutely. And I think uh, that there's also a place for using herbs that stimulate immune activity. Herbs like astragalus or... Yep. Uh, echinacea yeah and also the medicinal mushrooms like shiitake maitake turkey tail reishi reishi all of these mushrooms have polysaccharides in them that help stimulate white blood cell activity and, and make our immune system more robust and if you have a chinese doctor in your community there's a famous formula called yuping fengsan or the jade windscreen that's traditionally taken when there's a lot of sick people around that sort of helps basically it has herbs that strengthen the digestion to make less dampness, but also herbs that uh, astragalus in it that strengthen the external immunity. And uh, uh, it's a protective formula. And so I've been recommending to all my patients to get a bottle of that. And when they start seeing ill people in their community to start taking it. Wise advice for sure. Well, let's talk about some of the other routes of transmission. We know that this virus can live on surfaces for 
uh, in damp climates can live for, for four or five days on a surface after someone breathes on it where there are aerial droplets of the virus or when they, someone sneezes and those viruses become airborne. We know that, that there could be a four, five, six foot radius around the person that of their in their personal space that has viral particles in it, especially in the, the early phases. This is interesting. I learned this last night listening to a virologist talk about this, is in the early phases of the the disease ramp up in the human body, we can have no symptoms and yet the body can be shedding viruses like crazy, shedding literally millions or billions of viral particles. And they can be detected at a very high rate in the environment, even though the person is asymptomatic. So what this points us to then is the, the fact that we need to be um, cleaning our homes, especially if there's an ill person in the home. You know, when someone goes into self-quarantine, uh, we, we need to make sure that the surfaces are being cleaned, especially the bathroom. We know that um, a, a, an ill person's stool has an incredibly high viral load and those particles can live in, in that area on those... You know, really disgusting to think about, but in, in uh, fecal particles, they can live on surfaces for up to two weeks. So cleanliness inside the home is incredibly important when there's an ill person in the home. Yeah. And maybe being extra cautious around public bathrooms as well. You know, after washing your hands, turn off the faucet with the paper towel, open the door with the paper towel. Uh, and if you own a business, make sure the knobs and are washed and cleaned on a daily basis. Yeah, very wise indeed. Another thing I want to talk about is just sort of general adaptogens. Uh, cordyceps, which is a mushroom, uh, astragalus, uh, and rhodiola have all been shown to sort of support the immune system and and also reduce autoimmunity as well. As some sometimes when the that these adaptogens can sort of support on both ways. When your immune system is underactive, it can support bringing it up, but also can the, when these adaptogens have been on board for a while, they can s stop, uh, uh, reduce autoimmunity when your immune system over ramps. You know, a lot, a lot of the more serious issues coming from uh, COVID-19 is when the virus is really big in the body and starting to take over and your immune system is trying to kill it you know, sometimes it can overshoot the mark. Mm -hmm. And so uh, taking these adaptogens while you're really sick is probably only in the realm of, you know, really highly skilled professional herbalist. But taking them beforehand can be useful for just about everybody. And, you know, our sponsor performance tea makes a whole line of adaptogen herbs. You know, one other piece that I wanted to bring up with Luke, just because Luke is a cannabis expert, is I passed him on a uh, text last night uh, from the uh, some research on the NIH website that said uh, the re relationship between cannabinoids and uh, viral immunity. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Marco, thank you for sending over that study. I spent quite a bit of time going through that. It was a literature review that looked at both human and animal trials and how cannabinoids affect the immune system. And it was really quite fascinating research paper because it showed that, that in some cases, in certain cannabinoids are actually active against pathogens, you know, bacteria and fungi, but uh, cannabinoids are not particularly active against viruses. And one thing that we see in their human trials to show this is that um, cannabinoids can downregulate the CD4 and CD8 lymphocytes. And these are white blood cells that are actively attacking foreign invaders in our body. And so this is the last thing that we want. So if you're a cannabis user, the, the, the suggestion here from the medical literature is that you might want to cut back or even eliminate your cannabis use if you have an active case of a virus because it's decreasing your immune system efficiency with, with some degree of certainty due to the, that cannabinoid interaction with your white blood cells. And I also want to say, especially if you have other comorbidity uh, issues, if you've been a regular smoker, if you're overweight, if you have diabetes, like these, these, can, these could be, uh, create a really challenging uh, immunodeficiency issues that, that could be dangerous. Absolutely. And so there's some other ways to, to look at that. It's many people, when they first consume THC within the first few minutes, they'll notice that their body temperature goes down. It's a fairly common sign of uh, someone getting high on THC. And we know that represents 
a decrease in metabolism. That the, the body's metabolism is slowing down because THC downregulates the central nervous system. That's part of why it's so relaxing and so enjoyable is because it kind of takes us takes the edge off of, of life. But when someone has a viral infection, that's not a beneficial turn of events. We agree. We want to keep their metabolism as high as possible because it's the metabolism. In fact, that's why we get a fever. The fever represents a, a metabolic spike to help get rid of the virus, essentially helping the white blood cells outcompete the virus for resources. Yep. The other thing I want to say is that exercise and aerobic activity are particularly useful for ramping up, ramping up the immunity. So if if you've been a little couch potato in the spring, you know, between the sort of winter slowing down and before it warming up outside, it might be time to get like a daily jog in. Start start moving the body more. Get a good sweat on every day. Uh, sweat and movement really uh, helps the lymphatic system cleanse. And basically, we want our lymph system basically all primed up and ready to go for fighting off viral illnesses right now. Absolutely. And, and hopefully, you'll do this outside when the weather's nice. You'll get some sun on your skin because we know that vitamin D3, which comes from the sun, our body makes vitamin D3 upon sun exposure, Vitamin D3 is very important for white blood cell competence. Blood cells, white blood cells that are deficient in vitamin D3 are not as effective at combating viruses. And this is part of why the flu season really peaks in spring and in fall because these are time periods when vitamin D is naturally low. So if you can increase your vitamin D either through exercise outdoors, which is spending time outside, that's the best way, or through vitamin D3 supplements, then you're also really helping to boost your immune system. Yeah. So maybe rather than watching Netflix in your bed, you know, you can go outside and sit on the porch and get a little extra sunlight and read a book or go for a walk and uh, listen to the birds sing. Maybe get out in the garden, get some get some of your food security going. Let's bring it home on a positive note. What what is going back to that Chinese character for opportunity? What is the opportunity here, Luke, for? What is if we take the most of this really big crisis and use it as a way to evolve as a species, evolve as a personal human being to support our communities and evolution? What does it look like? Man, that's a great question, Marco. I'm really glad you asked that. I think there are multiple aspects to this that really can be seen as a positive. First and foremost, as we've already talked about, it's an opportunity to really cultivate our own personal health and well-being. Because as we become more resilient humans, we have more to give to our families and to our community. But there's a bigger opportunity there. And I think the biggest opportunity that we see is that we've been operating in a way in this planet, and in this country in particular, where we've been sourcing our products, our food in particular, from very far away. And you, know, you made a great point in an earlier conversation about how people travel over to Italy or to other parts of Europe to participate in that really amazing food culture where you're getting you know, locally grown, really high quality produce, you know, foods and wines and, and meats. And people really love that. We don't need to travel to Europe to do that. Yeah, what if we, each of our communities had a farmer's market? Boulder has a fantastic farmer's market. Um, had local producers making prosciutto, making beautiful products, from their own local communities. And we already see the advent of a true food culture happening in America. It's just it's 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 alive and growing. And can we support that rather than going to Europe to taste their amazing food culture? Can we commit to creating amazing food and community cultures here at home? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of not just our food culture, but the clothing that we buy and the shoes and the, the, a lot of the products. Not that we shouldn't buy things from China because China is a, a really beautiful culture and it has a lot of important things to offer, you know, not least of which is Chinese medicine. But at the same time, back you know, 20, 50, 100 years ago, every culture, every, every community in America had a, a tailor and a cobbler. You could buy clothing from someone that you could meet. Yeah, and the global economy has taken out those local 
cobblers and local tailors. And I think right now what we're seeing is the danger of a very fragile global supply chain. And eventually maybe we'll see the dangers of a very fragile global food chain. And one of our questions is, can we make a more anti-fragile local economy? And I think one of the things we're probably all feeling right now is how fragile our global economy is and how fragile our place is in it. And can we can we create an anti-fragile economy? And that's interesting that, that you use that word. So let's define that a bit. Anti-fragility is a concept that was developed by a mathematician and philosopher named Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And he characterizes anti-fragility as something that can actually benefit from a certain amount of chaos in the system. So he, he contrasts anti-fragility with something that's simply robust or something that's fragile. And something that's fragile is something that's easily broken. Something that's robust is something that's not easily broken but can eventually be broken. And it's essentially less subject to damage via chaos and uncertainty. But anti-fragility is something that, that benefits from a little bit of of uncertainty and chaos. Yeah, and how can we make our economies and our health more anti-fragile? Absolutely. So if you really study anti-fragility the way that Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about it, one of the key features of something that's anti-fragile is something that, that has options. Optionality creates anti-fragility. And so what that means is that for your daily calories, your, your daily food, if you only have one source of calories and that's coming from very far away, that's a fragile That's a fragile system. If you have only one source of calories and it's coming from close by, that's a little bit more robust, but it's still, it's still fragile. So the ultimate situation would be to have the optionality, the option to, to get something from far away or to get something that's from nearby or even maybe something that you produce yourself, having the most options possible. Right now, most Americans don't have a lot of options. A lot of Americans live in food deserts where the only food available comes from a giant industrialized corporate food system. And that's very fragile because that food system is subject, as we're seeing, to tremendous disruption. Yeah, we see that even just with the run on toilet paper, yeah. you know, where you have people have panic buying. But uh, it's more likely that we'll see increasing supply chain disruption in days to come. Absolutely. So how can we improve our local food security, grow a garden. Take responsibility for your own your own food supply chain, and that would be to improve the, the, the amount of food that you're getting from your local community and from your own backyard. Yeah, and support local ranchers, local farmers as well. This is a good time to strengthen your own connections within your own community. Absolutely. The other thing to look at, I think, is global travel. And as, as we were talking about earlier, I travel a fair bit for work. I go to a lot of conferences and a lot of symposiums to speak and to learn. And these are all changing because these events are potential vectors for disease transmission. So a lot of them are getting postponed or uh, canceled outright. And that's a good thing. It's going to slow the spread of the virus. But it, it really points to a deeper fact, and that's that global travel, as we've created it as we practice it today is not very sustainable and it puts a tremendous load on the planet in terms of putting pollution in the air and carbon into the air. Uh, this is true for the airline industry and, and it's even tr especially true for the cruise ship industry, which is really not business travel at all. People fly for business all the time and for pleasure, but pretty much nobody does cruise ships for business unless your business is to put on a cruise ship or to you know put on um, a themed cruise. I know there are businesses like that out there, but these are businesses that, that use a tremendous amount of petroleum. They use really toxic fuel. They, cruise ships use bunker fuel, which is the dirtiest kind of oil out there. And they discharge their waste directly into the ocean. This coronavirus is going to really hit the cruise ship industry hard. And that's unfortunate for anyone who has a job in that industry. I hate to see anyone put out of work by anything like that. But at the same time, it's a consumer behavior which is not helpful to the planet. And even in the past, we've seen large outbreaks of other viruses on cruise ships, like the norovirus outbreaks. We've had many norovirus outbreaks on cruise ships over the past few years. We should be looking at the, the deeper impact of what these practices do and the implication of, of plagues like this, of pandemics like this. There was a 
an 18th century scientist, or 19th century scientist, Rudolf Virchow. He's really considered to be one of the fathers of modern medicine and pathology. And what he said is that a pandemic is a sign that society is out of whack, that society is off, out of kilter, out of balance in some way. And so what this pandemic is truly is an opportunity to look at what's out of whack in our society and to make correction, to take corrective action. Yeah, it's a chance for a really big reset in a way. Like if, you know, Greta Thunberg says, you know, everybody needs to cut down their global travel for to save the planet, you know, it sort of fell on deaf ears a little bit. But now suddenly when it comes to sort of like my personal health and my personal safety and well-being, like people are canceling flights all over the place. You know, one of the things that came up to me was reading uh, a report from Wuhan, China. Imagine being, say, our age in our 40s and having never seen a blue sky. Imagine being in a city and never seeing a blue sky, that it's the industrial, basically, smog. Like, people were wearing face masks in a lot of the cities in China before this happened just because of uh, industrial pollutants. But imagine now, for the first time in, say, a generation or two, people can look up in the sky and see a blue sky because basically all industry is shut down. And while for all the people who are small shopkeepers and factory workers, I'm sure there's a big financial scare and it must be very anxiety provoking. There must be some silver lining there in being able to see a blue sky again. Absolutely. And it must be a tremendous relief. It must be, I mean, I can't imagine what these people might be, or maybe I can't imagine, but what they might be feeling after decades after decade of toil, that's the other side of this, is that the work culture in China, is similar to the work culture in America, maybe even more extreme, where there's no paid vacation. There's maybe a week of unpaid vacation. People work tremendously long hours. And so for decade after decade, people have been toiling at their jobs and never seeing a blue sky. And now all that has changed. It must feel in some ways like a tremendous vacation, like a tremendous relief. While While there is anxiety over the economics of it, I imagine there's a lot of interesting emotions running through people's hearts and minds. Yeah, imagine having, you know, suddenly a month vacation with your family at home, which which sounds both very challenging and uh, and and imagine some healing and some trauma and some relationship is going on. And for my Chinese family, when my Chinese family gets together, it's all about food. You know, we start cooking together we start making dumplings we start making wonton you know we start doing fire pot we start you know a lot of times I joke that my parents talk about at dinner what they're going to make for breakfast and at breakfast (laughs) what they're going to make for lunch and I think there's an opportunity in this to really like slow down and and introspect yeah I completely agree there's there's a lot of silver lining and I think if we focus on the positive and take corrective action steps to really take care of our own health and to take care of the health of our friends and family and our community that will actually come out of this coronavirus episode as a species much stronger, much healthier, and with a much more balanced way of operating on the planet. And another thing I think is, you know, one of the strengths of the American spirit is sort of caring for your community. If you have sick people in your community that you know are sick and staying at home, you know, go take go take some chicken soup to them. Put it in a Tupperware, ring their doorbell, stand back 20 feet and say, hey, I brought you some soup. You know, the beauty of America, like I remember the moments after 9-11 where it seemed like America came together for a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I think the strength of the American spirit is that we can face adversity. The, the spirit of... America itself is anti-fragile in a way. Like adversity sometimes brings out the best in Americans if it stays around for a while. That's a, a great way to put it, Marco, and I think that's a great way to, to end the podcast. Oh, wait, I still have a prayer. Uh, this uh, prayer is from Navalin Wang, and I just wanted to end it with a prayer because I think, you know, prayer is one of those things that influences our psychoneuroimmunology in a really positive way, regardless of who you're praying to. And uh, in this case, uh, I call on my ancestors. I call on the sages and enlightened masters from the past thousand years. 
I call on the spirit of the noble dragons. I call on heaven and earth. May my family be healthy. May all of the people be healthy. May all the doctors and nurses and caretakers working tirelessly on the front line find courage. May all who have lost someone they love find peace and serenity. May all who are infected find faith. May all who lost income have a warm place to sleep and enough to eat. If suffering is necessary, may it also be accompanied by openings to deeper love and wisdom. May the suffering required to ride this crisis be as minimal as possible. May the opportunity for the realization of more love and compassion. May this be an opportunity for the realization of more wisdom and clarity. May this be an opportunity for the discovery of more aligned ways of being. May we all learn the lessons meant for us. May the Tao be with those in power. May the Tao be with us all. Thank you, Marco. That was a wonderful prayer. And we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Modern Immortal Podcast. And we look forward to catching up with you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Immortals Podcast, brought to you by the Mandala Integrative Medical Clinic and by Performance Team.